Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. I wonder, what do you know about Palestinians? In this eye-opening interview with Gloria Olivier, we discuss the plight of Palestinians today. Did you know that thousands of Christians live in the West Bank today under Israeli occupation? In this interview, you'll learn a little bit about the history of this conflict as well as what conditions are like on the ground. Now, I realize this can be a sensitive subject, but I just ask that you listen to Gloria and keep an open mind on this important topic. Well, uh, welcome, Gloria, to Restitutio, to our fellowship as well. Today we're talking about Palestine, and I thought we could start in the beginning. Talk about where (laughs) you were born and uh, growing up, and so uh, what was it like for you as a a child growing up, as far as your nationality? I'm the first generation of Palestinian American. My parents were born elsewhere. My mother was born in South America although her family was Palestinian. And when she was uh, almost five, they moved back to Palestine. And my father was born in Palestine in a town called Ramallah, which if you know anything about the country, it's now the de facto capital of the West Bank. And I'll tell you more about that later. But anyway, they were married in 1947, and I grew up in Connecticut, a very preppy Connecticut. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, my parents, you know, we had some Middle Eastern friends, but they weren't really Palestinians. They were uh, Syrians or Lebanese, and we were Christians. We were always Christians. And uh, I grew up not really caring much about that. I wanted to be American. I wanted to fit in. And in Connecticut, which is very uh, sort of all-American and very preppy, you just wanted to fit in. But when I was nine, my mother took myself and my brothers back to the Middle East to see my grandmother and hundreds of relatives that lived there. And uh, we got a taste uh, of us over the summer of what it was like to be in Palestine. How was your experience as a nine-year-old? Did you feel like it was so foreign and strange or you feel like, oh, wow, I feel at home? I felt at home. Uh, An interesting thing is we didn't have a lot of family around us. There were some in the States, Mm -hmm. but they were in Texas or California or Detroit. So when we went to the Middle East uh, that summer, we were met with the caravan of cars at Jerusalem Mm -hmm. Airport. There were so many relatives, (laughs) and they all came to see us and visit us, and we belonged. And even though we didn't speak Arabic when we got there, by the end of the summer we did. Um, (laughs) My grandmother did not speak English. My grandmother, however, was an educated woman and a woman who had started uh, an organization that's still going. It's an organization to help people who who have uh, children with needs, and it's called Anahda. Anyway, she was uh, the matriarch of this family of nine children, of which my mother was one. Mm. So there were a lot of cousins, and um, we loved it there. We fell in love with it. And also, I was hungry to know about the places where Jesus Christ had walked. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me how this came into my head, but or my heart, but it did. And my mother had sort of t- 
told me that we were going to go to places where Jesus Christ had been. So I was anxious, to, in a good way, to see those places. And I was actually pretty disappointed in seeing them because they didn't seem real to me. You saw more the tourist version of the various sites, like yes. the big churches that have been built on. The Holy things. Sepulchre. Yes, okay. And the Church of the Nativity. Yeah. And, um, Two very disappointing sites. Very uh, disappointing. Even At nine, to this day. Yeah. I realized that they were, they were bogus. Yeah. But, but I was still hungry to know more. Yeah. And uh, this was 1957, a long time ago. Okay. And so it was a very different place then than it is now. Mm -hmm. It was actually part of Jordan. So now that's no longer the case. Mm -hmm. uh, and the only time I remember seeing any guns, we went to a museum where they had the um, Dead Sea Scrolls. And there were soldiers outside of this mu little museum with guns, and I, that made an impression on me. But I basically loved it there, and I think my brothers and I did not want to leave. In fact, my mother had to, <laughs> she had to get us to the airport by telling us we were going to weigh our luggage. Because if she told us we were going to leave, we would have all had meltdowns. <laughs> but I kind of knew. And it, and it was true, they do weigh your luggage on they do. On the way to get it onto the plane. <laughs> <laughs> so she got us home. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's it good. was quite an impact that trip had. So what was it like when you got back home to Connecticut? Were you I, a totally changed person or you, you went back into just normal life or what was it like? We came back late as the school year had already begun. My mother didn't pay much attention to that so we came back in the middle of September. And I remember my fourth grade teacher was not happy about that. But my mother had a lot of slides and pictures of the, the Middle East, and the principal of our school wanted her to show them. Hmm. And I, of course, was a little embarrassed, but I thought it was kind of cool that she was doing that. So the principal, at least, was interested in our trip. But I felt, I began to feel at that time that there was some, and I didn't know what to call it, but I think it was racism, really because I'd come back as a very chocolate nut. <laughs> and I mean, what that means is I was very dark skinned and I didn't usually look that way, but I did when I came back because mm. I was running and playing and climbing trees over yes. there. And I knew that this teacher didn't like me and I didn't know why. So this is just something I put together. I don't know if it, to this day if it's actually true, it's something I felt. But we just got back into life in West Hartford and. I had this great uh, dream to be an actress. So I began working on that. I was taking dance and singing, and for many years, that's all I could think about was my future career. And I didn't want to be Palestinian. Even though I had nice memories of Palestine, I didn't really claim it as my own. Mm -hmm. So we got back into life. and Yeah, and you ended up in New York City, right? Doing, yes, I did. Uh, some Broadway. <clears throat> I ended up, I went to college and got a degree in theater. And I went to New York City and worked from, well, really from the late 60s until 1978. I worked in the theater in, in and around New York. And so I got to do my dream. Yeah. Very good. Uh, so let's, let's skip forward to when you started to reconnect with your roots uh, later on. What inspired that? Or what My you... mother's hometown in Palestine, Ramallah, used to be a completely Christian town. And there's a story as to how it started. 
It started in the 1500s when my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather basically fled south to form this town because he didn't want to marry his granddaughter or his daughter to a Muslim man. They were friends, but he didn't want the marriage to take place. So that's how the town was started. But anyway, that's... 500 years ago. 500 years okay. ago. So you know that Palestine has been around for a while. And my family, by the way, have always been Christians. They didn't become Christians in the 1500s. They were always Christians. Well, this town has many, many of the diaspora Palestinians who live in the States. And starting about 62 mm. years ago, they started to get together in the summer and have each other meet each other and, and raise money to go to college. They sent all their kids to college. And I went to one of those with my family, my husband and my daughter, in 2011. And it happened to be in Washington, D.C. And that was the year of the, maybe you remember the Arab Spring, or maybe you don't. But it was an, oh, yeah. a, a lot of Arab countries that was huge. were, uh, you know, speaking up. And at that time, there was uh, some interest in the U.N. accepting Palestine as a state. Well, I suddenly woke up. It was as if I hadn't paid attention for years, and I thought, I need to get educated. I need to go home and buy books and read. And I mean, I had had some interest in my background, but for instance, I worked in theater mm -hmm. and had older actors who were very interested in world affairs say, what's the matter with you? You're Palestinian. Don't you care what goes on there? Don't you know what goes on there? And I didn't know, and I didn't care. <laughs> but in 2011, you just focused on the career, huh? Just focused on the career at that Absolutely. stage. Absolutely, yeah. it was just about the career. Yeah. In the in interim, I had become born again and started to study the Bible and was very concerned about those things, and you know, was part of a ministry. And there were so many other things taking, you know, my attention. And I got married. I had a daughter. And uh, so by 2011, all of that was kind of behind me. And I mean, I really feel it, it was God because mm -hmm. I suddenly was charged in my heart that I should pay attention, that uh -huh. I should find out what's happening. And uh, I came home and I bought three books online to see if I could sort through all the rhetoric. And one of the books is on that table. It's called Fast Times in Palestine by Pamela Olson. And I, I bought these three books, but that's the one I first read. And I, it's about a girl who, she was from Stigler, Oklahoma, all American girl, knows nothing about Palestine, meets some friends, goes on a trip to the Middle East, ends up in Ramallah, falls in love with the people, lives with some of them for a while, farmers, and then loves it so much that she comes back to the States, learns Arabic, by the way, she was a Stanford grad, no slouch there, smart girl. Goes back to the Palestine, lives there for three years, and works in the government. Well, this book really got my attention. She talked about how things were in 2003 through 2006. Things were very difficult there, but I knew none of this. I had just refused to know. I didn't want to know. It was too troubling to know. She got my eyes open to the situation of being under occupation. And I became friends with her. I, in fact, she talked about the original families of Ramallah because it's traditional that their that families, you know, started the town and that everybody's still related. 
But what's in Ramallah now is not just those people. In fact, it's hardly any of those people. There's lots of people there because it's a big city. But she got interested and we became friends and I invited her to come speak at Fitchburg State University. She lectured there and she lectured in our home and we made a big dinner and invited a lot of the believers to come. And uh, I started to get interested. And Robert, my husband, who's Irish and English, we call him an honorary Palestinian. <laughs> because, and he, doesn't have his, he even has an Arabic name now. It's, what is it? Raja El Zetuna. <laughs> right. Zetun means olives, and we are Olivier. So <laughs> he became very interested, and he loves languages, and he loved, of course, the food. And well, we just started to get more and more invested and in thinking we needed to learn more. And then I believe that God just worked in our hearts that we should, we should speak out for Palestine. And amongst our Christian friends, many of whom, as many Americans, know so little about what goes on over there. They hear rhetoric about terrorism, that Palestinians are terrorists, and ter uh, Palestinians are demonized often. Mm -hmm. So we've tried to change that perception. Mm -hmm and tell the truth, tell the facts. And this is not about being a, a hating Jews or being anti-Semitic, because in truth, the Arabs are Semitic. I am as a Semitic as any Jew is. It's not about that. It's about speaking up for people who don't have a voice. The least of these, and they are certainly the least of these. And I know that, Sean, you said that many people do not know there are Christians in Palestine. No, I just naively assumed that Israel had Jews and then Palestine had Muslims and that if there were Christians, which of course, you know, the, there were some in Israel I knew about, they were like the messianic type mm. where they're going to keep the law and, and, and so on to kind of blend. I was very surprised in 2018, you know, last October when we visited the West Bank, uh, which is almost like half of Israel, by the way, we came to a 100% Christian city called Taipei. I was like, what do you mean you're Christians? I thought this was the West Bank. They're like, oh, well, you know, we're all Arab over here, but just because you're Arab doesn't mean you're Muslim. There are lots of Arab Christians as well. It was definitely like a moment where I, I felt my mental world did not align with the real world, <laughs> you know? And uh, then we went to Bethlehem, <laughs> which was absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, so 60% Christian, 40% uh, Muslim there. It's just a tragic place because it's surrounded by these massive walls uh, with these guard towers and barbed wire and Israeli soldiers with machine guns. And the people that are living inside, you can see what they think by their artwork on their side of the wall. And the artwork on their side of the wall says things like, let's not build walls and let's make peace. And there's a lot of like subversive peace artwork. Some of you heard of Banksy, famous uh, painter, has some, some stuff there, artist. And we, by, by the time we got to Bethlehem, we had been in the West Bank for like four days. So we had seen the stark economic contrast between the West Bank and then the rest of Israel. We had been through the checkpoints a couple of times because we would, we would sleep in one side and then go to the other. Uh, we had visited a... Uh, just a typical West Bank town called Janine at one point where we just stopped for lunch and we were treated like absolute celebrities. 
it was just unbelievable. Everyone was taking out their phones, taking pictures of us. <laughs> Imagine a bustle of like 55 Americans, most of whom have gray hair and none of whom are famous in this land. And all we are doing is like just getting a, uh, just getting a falafel, you know, we're just like at a falafel shop. And they, they were just so warmly treated us. And it, and it was just like, is everything I thought wrong about this? I mean, surely, surely all, everybody in the West Bank is Muslim and surely they're all terrorists. You know, that's, it's not like anybody ever told me that, but I just kind of picked that up somewhere. You know, that sort of simplified bias. You know, so it was, it was very, very shocking experience for me. Well, that's not, I mean, it's not unusual because really that's been the rhetoric for 70 years in one way or another. That, yeah. You know, uh, that Israel is victim of the dirty terrorist Arab. We know there's been t terrorism, but it's been on both sides uh, and much more. I mean, I could talk about that at length, but the rhetoric is so firmly against the Palestinians that it's very hard to get anybody to even consider changing their thinking. But as Christians, I think we have to endeavor to do that because, well, I told you that my mother's town, Ramallah, was completely Christian for hundreds of years. What changed that was the occupation. I, I can't say it was just the occupation, which I didn't even talk about yet, but lots of people are there. But the other thing you have to understand is that my mother, growing up, there was a Muslim town, there was a Jewish town, there was, everybody lived peacefully together. It wasn't mm -hmm. like they were separated. They were all Palestinians, like we're all Americans. And they shared food, they bartered. You can see that in Elias Shakur's book, that they had friendly terms with the Muslims and with the Jewish families. There wasn't a separation. Yeah, uh, just to mention that book again, uh, Elias Shakur, Blood Brothers. Uh, that book, Gloria recommended to me, was it like a month ago? Something like that. Like it's absolutely phenomenal. If you want to read about the sort of history of Palestinian-Israeli relations, pretty much from the beginning of when the first troops started coming over after World War II, this guy lived through it all. He's in his late 80s now, right, Robert? You said late 80s. He was just a boy when it started happening. But he was there, living in the region of Galilee, and his entire village was dispossessed by Israelis for no reason. You know, they just, they just wanted, they wanted the village. And, um, you know, the great thing about this book in particular that I saw over and over was this, this godly man's uh, phenomenal commitment to the Sermon on the Mount, to living the way Jesus taught in the face of just unconscionable racism and, and persecution and, and just bad treatment over many years. And, and he, he resolved within himself to continue to fight, but to fight in a Jesus kind of way. And has really had a movement as a result of that among, what, what, do you remember the name of his Christians? There's a certain sect. Melkite, Melkite. Melkite Christians. So, They're um, supposed to be Melkite Catholics, but they, yeah. they marry, unlike the Catholic Catholics. Priests. They oh, there can, you have it. So if any, if any of you are interested in, in, in reading that, it's called Blood Brothers, and it's, it's a really easy read because it's autobiographical. It's not, you know, it's not abstract. It's, it's, it's very, very easy. So thank you for that. What would you say the situation is like today? It's egregious. <laughs> That's bad. 
Well, describe way. it for us a I'll little bit. I'll describe it. Yeah. You had asked me about the economic situation, but I know it's more than that. Uh, it's very hard for anybody to hold a job because getting to your job means going through what we call checkpoints. And there's, in 2013, there were 99 fixed checkpoints. That means they're built to be that. But then they also have what they call flying checkpoints, where they can just stop your car. So let's say you do have a job, uh, and it's on the other side of something. It's not Israel or the West Bank. It's just another town, and you can't get to it. You can be stopped at a checkpoint and wait for hours. Not only that, there are some roads that only Israelis are allowed to use, mm. and some roads that, you know, if you're Palestinian, you cannot use that road. The better roads are for the Israelis. It's very hard to keep a job. I, I have a friend who wrote that book, and she has friends in Palestine who this woman went to college in the 2000s to get a degree in psychology, and she counsels people because things are so difficult there, but she can't be paid. There's no money to pay her. So my friend Pamela and several of us send her money, to, and her husband is in prison. <laughs> and she's not in prison because he did anything bad, but people, there are thousands of people in prison there. And that includes, this year alone, over 400 minors. This year, since the beginning of 2019. Um, and they keep them not on a charge, but many times they, it's called administrative detention, whatever that is. Uh, and, and sometimes it's because a child's threw a stone. And by the way, they don't have weapons. You might hear about Gaza and so forth. They don't have any weapons. I mean, they may have a kitchen knife, but they don't have guns, they don't have planes. And, you know, Gaza has been bombed three times in the last 12 years, I think. And actually, uh, there was a mini bombing in May of this year. Gaza is on the southern part, it's not the West Bank. It's the southern part of what used to be Palestine. And it's a strip of land um, that is under blockade. I don't know if you know this. But it, in other words, things can't come in and things can't come out. Not goods, not medical supplies, not people. And it's been that way for, I think, 12, 12 years? years. Yeah. yeah. And this is where there's this great frustration there. And all they have is a few rockets, which they shouldn't be using. <laughs> when they use the rockets, the Israelis use the whole thing. Right. They, it, you can't call it a conflict because there's no parity. There's no equality in what they have. But they basically have decimated Gaza. There's very little drinking water. There's maybe four hours of electricity a day. Unemployment is hideous. I mean, things are much worse in Gaza even than in the, in the West yeah. Bank. Yeah. In my experience with the West Bank, I was struck by, as I mentioned before, the economic disparity between the two locations. I mean, Israel is very much a first world nation. You know, they have stable electricity, good Wi-Fi and all the hotels, cell service and, you know, modern roads and, you know, a very nice international airport. There's nothing about Israel that, that struck me as being like third world or anything. But then the moment I crossed the checkpoint, it's like, it's like I'm in the poor part of any city, but that's everywhere. What I uh, also learned when I was there is that so many people in the West Bank want to work in uh, Israel proper because you get paid more. Even though the Israelis pay them less than they would pay an Israeli, 
at least it's more than they would get if they just stayed in uh, their part of the country. So there's a, there's a great economic incentive to go outside of the checkpoint, but then you can get stuck there for hours. And d didn't you say people have like given birth at the checkpoint? Oh yes, I was gonna mention that many women have been forced to give birth at a checkpoint because they can't get to the hospital in Jerusalem. They're from a small town. I mean, there are rec many records of this and women have died and babies have died. Wow. Um, and it's a humiliating thing. It's not just, it's a humiliation. I think I should tell people what the West Bank is if okay, you don't yeah. know. In 1948, when Israel declared itself a state, the UN had given them a certain amount of land, uh, more land than the Palestinians, and the Palestinians didn't agree to it, and to make a long story short, they fought over it. And, but they basically declared their state, um, and they had a certain thing called the Green Line, which was Israel. Beyond this, you know, west of the Green Line was Israel. In 1967, there was a brief war called the Six-Day War in which Israel claimed more of that land. They won this war and they claimed what is the West Bank of the Jordan. So, okay, here's Israel and here's the West Bank of the Jordan. They took that land which the UN had not given them and they put it under occupation. So that land is technically not Israel. It is uh, Palestine, it's Palestinian land but it's under occupation. Now, if any of you know anything about World War II, Paris was occupied, but not forever, during the war. Uh, and that only lasted four or five years, but this has go been going on for over 60 years now, the occupation. Mm. So um, this land is not technically Israel. It's the West Bank, or the other part they took was the Gaza part, down below. Israel proper, even is apartheid, but the whole area is apartheid because there are certain rules for the Palestinians and certain rules for the Israelis. They can't use the same roads, they're not given the same protections. For instance, the army, the Israeli army protects what's called settlers. And what settlers are is they go and they, they've purchased a beautiful home that the Israelis have built them and they've moved in on Palestinian land often and the army protects them, but it does not protect the Palestinians who have farms in the mm -hmm. area. In fact, often you'll hear of these farms with ancient olive trees being burned down or cut down by these settlers. Mm -hmm. And many of them, I don't know how many, but there are many from America, that, mm -hmm. from Brooklyn even. And I can't state how many, I don't know how many, but they're not all native Israelis. They, so these apartheid laws that some are good, some are not so good, but they're, not, they're second class citizens. That's what the apartheid means and that's what occurred in South Africa. And one of the things that changed that was some of the boycotting that was done, which now I'm getting to that ahead of myself, but there is boycotting being done regarding Palestine, which is the idea is to put um, some kind of financial pressure to change the, mm -hmm. the occupation, to mm -hmm. release the occupation. Because life is very difficult for people. If they, you know, and they're angry, they're frustrated. And if they throw a stone or anything or shout at a soldier, they tear gas them or kill them. You may have heard of the March of Return in Gaza that's taken place in the last couple of years. I can't remember the number of people that have been killed 
for protesting for the most part nonviolently, just being there, just being Palestinian. Yeah. Um, so things are difficult. Yeah. What would you say is the plight of the Christians in the West Bank? Is it any different than other Palestinians? Or do they deal mm. with Muslim persecution because they're a minority? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing, but people think that there is no persecution and there is no animosity between the Muslims and the Christians. They're Palestinians. Mm. But there was a, a show done a few years ago it was, I think, a PBS show trying to prove that Christians were leaving Bethlehem because of the Muslims. And Bob Simon went and did a whole show on it, mm -hmm. and he, said, he found out that that wasn't true. They left because of the occupation, because they couldn't make a living. Right. It, it wasn't about the Muslims at all. They tried to wipe his program. Well, anyway, I don't, I don't know exactly how that happened, but they didn't like that he just said mm -hmm. those things. So. Now, I, I think many of us in America are kind of exposed to a theology, a biblical uh, position based on Genesis that uh, God will bless those who bless Abraham, right, and curse those who curse him. This has kind of like combined with a sort of a modern political theory that's now called Zionism, and it's the idea that as Christians we should support modern-day political Israel pretty much no matter what. What would you say is your way, as a Bible-believing person, how do you think about those well, promises? I, I think, for one thing, that we're all the children of Abraham, and we're included in that blessing. You know, there are many places in the New Testament where God says He can make children of Abraham out of the stones. I don't think it's exclusive. It includes us. Robert has something that he might want to say about that. I'm Robert Olivier. I'm Gloria's husband and the honorary Palestinian. But let's think about, you know, we've, we've, we're all Bible-reading people, I believe, that are interested in this podcast. And Do you know what the name Abraham means? <laughs> His original name was Abram, which I understand meant father of height. And then God changed his name. Do you know what the name Abraham means? It means father of many nations. So when one nation says that they are the exclusive beneficiaries of promises made to Abraham, I think we ought to contest. Uh, as Gloria was saying, spiritually we are all, as believers, children of Abraham. Uh, and that verse, Genesis 12, 3, And I will bless them that bless thee, God told Abraham, and curse him that curseth thee, and thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Hmm. How many families of the earth are going to be blessed in Abraham? It says all. Did I hear that word all? All <laughs> the families. Now this verse is quoted in the New Testament a couple of times, mm -hmm. as you know. Peter referred to it right after the day of Pentecost in, in Acts 3.25, I believe it is. And instead of families, it uses the word kindred in the King James. So kindred, we're talking about a broad category. Where the Apostle Paul quotes it in Galatians, he uses all the nations of the world. Now that's beginning to sound like Abraham's name, mm -hmm. that he's a father of many nations. But you think about, okay, all the children of Abraham, how many children did Abraham have? 
Well, I'm thinking of Isaac and, Isaac and Ishmael. And if you read in Genesis, so Ishmael was circumcised, right? Mm -hmm. He's under a blood covenant blessing. And Ishmael, it says in Genesis, he's the father of 12 princes. He spread the family of Abraham all over the Middle East. And then what about Isaac? Isaac had how many sons? Jacob and Esau. So there's a whole other, and Esau is the father of the Edomites. And then Jacob himself is the father of, as we were saying, the 12 tribes, or 13. Um, and they became Judah and Israel. That became a couple of nations. So the family of Abraham split many ways. And what was the promise? You remember God made him a promise, and it had two parts to it. He took him outside and showed him the stars in heaven. And he said, if you can number these stars, that's how many descendants you're going to have. If you see all that sand on the seashore, that's how many. If you can count that, you can count your descendants. So the family of Abraham is going to prove biblically to have been huge. I think we're all beneficiaries of those promises to Abraham. And for one country to say... Oh, you, you can't say anything against us. We're descendants of Abraham. Well, join the club. You in particular bring up Galatians 3.28 and 29 in my mind, uh, or 27, starting there. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants heirs according to promise. Are we going to go with the New Testament interpretation or the Old Testament interpretation? Now, I know a Jewish person is going to go with the Old Testament because that's their Bible. They don't believe in the New Testament. We're not Jewish. We're Christian or Christian Jews, whichever, if you're ethically Jewish. But this is a scripture that I think is not like joking around or being metaphorical. I think it's, I think it's a, a true spiritual reality that Christ has, has done something so big that has brought in the nations into the people of God. Furthermore, that a lot of times we're reading our Bibles and we read about Israel. And because this country is also called Israel, we make, we make a connection. We're like, okay, this is those people. But there's a long history after the Bible to get to where we are now. And what I understand to be the modern condition of Israel is not even really a religious country at the governmental level, that it's, it's more of a secular country. And it does have religious people in it, but it's not, it's not like run by the principles of the, the, the Torah like ancient Israel was. Am I saying that wrong? Or? No. Okay, so we have to take into consideration the sort of intervening history of like Christ uh, and what he did, <laughs> rather than just make the one-to-one -one link between you know, 2,000 years before Christ, which is Abraham and this promise, and then 2,000 years after Christ, which is us today, and say, oh, they're just the same thing, full stop. I think I mentioned to you another book by Naim Atik, mm -hmm. Justice, Only Justice, which he talks about that. How can you, can you just look at the Bible of 2,000 years before Christ and apply it absolutely today? The difference is Jesus Christ. And I think mm -hmm. we, ha we can't forget that. And, and I'm also thinking of a, f 
a little quote that I heard from Ilan Pape, who is an Israeli historian. He said, and I, I don't know if this is exactly accurate, but he said something like, uh, most Jews are atheists, but they're sure God gave him Israel. <laughs> that's funny. I may have quoted it a little bit wrong, um, but that's the idea. That's another important distinction to make. You know, there's the ethnicity, Jewish, right? But then there's the religion, Jewish. Yes. Just because somebody's Jewish doesn't mean that they're practicing, you know, or they even believe in God. But, you know, for me, the, the biggest thing was looking in the eyes and seeing fellow Christians. If somebody's a Christian, if they're going to name the name of Christ, I don't care if they live in the West Bank or, or Antarctica, that person's my brother, that person's my sister, and it's like I have a commitment to that person regardless of political realities that might separate our, our nations. And there are lots of Christians over there. I don't know what the percentage is. Do you know? It's is a it, small percentage because many have like left. Compared to in Israel, are there many Christians in Israel? I don't think um, there Evangelism's illegal in Israel. Yes, it like, is. Like, you can't preach the gospel. I really don't um, know how many are in Israel, I, and I don't think it's a huge percent. Two percent in Israel, and then probably about two percent in the West Bank as well? Or? Maybe a little bit more. I mean, it used to be more. much higher, but, yeah. but many of them are here now. Yeah. But I mean, that's one thing that I, I think just as a Christian, like I can be sure of. It's like, okay, these people are, are Christians, so. Well, and it's interesting that there are all kinds of denominations there. There are, I think I wrote some of them down. I mean, there's the Melkites, the Orthodox, the Catholics, there's Episcopalian, there's mm. uh, Baptist, I think there's Lutheran, and the Friends, the Quakers. Where does that leave us today? Talk about your own mission. <laughs> and what you're doing and what anybody else can do. Because I think none of us wants to like be anti-Jewish or anti-Israel mm -hmm. or, you know, we, we, you know, we want to express love to, you know, all nations. At the same time, when there is grave injustice happening, you know, in our world, whether it's in Africa or in the Middle East or in the Americas or in Asia, as Christians, we should pray on the side of justice, right? So, I mean, what, what do you, what do you recommend? That. I believe that as Christians we should know the facts mm -hmm. and we should help find out what the misperceptions are mm -hmm. because these are our brothers and sisters. There's not as many there as there used to be but there's still plenty there mm -hmm. that are our brothers and sisters and they are suffering. And not only that, their neighbors, the Muslims are suffering and I really personally, I care about both of them. I believe they're all our neighbors. and. You know, God's going to have to sort it all out in the end. But, but for me, those are my neighbors. I care about the Muslims. And I think as Christians of American birth, or even if it's not birth, citizenship, our country is very involved in, they give $3.8 billion a year to Israel in military aid. And they recently have cut off UNRWA, aid to Palestine. UNRWA was a UN organization formed after 1948 to give aid to, to refugees who still have not been allowed to go home. And they helped for many years, but this year they've cut that aid. Our country has cut that aid. So I think it, we are in a way complicit. We don't mean to be, but we, we have to recognize that our country has a part in this. What we can do is learn more about it. I don't expect people to go out and be activists. 
about it, but to learn about it. When someone brings it up and talk about the dirty Arabs and the, the rotten Palestinians, don't take that. That's not true. And I've put some materials out on the table. First of all, a map of Palestine that you should know that Palestine has been around for a long time. And there are certain people in our country, people in public office, who say there is no Palestine. There never was a Palestine. That's not true. Take a look at that antique map. I've also put a book, which is the basically the background of my mother's and father's hometown, which started in the 1500s. There's pictures in there, not from the 1500s, but <laughs> pictures from the 1900s. And there's even a picture of me at nine in there. Also, some of the other books can get you educated. And some of the reading is fascinating. Uh, that book called Wall in Jerusalem is written by uh, a Jewish man who really sees the problem of Christian Zionism as an issue. And he's a Jew and he wants peace in pa with Palestine. He wants peace. So I think what we need to do is learn these things. And we need to learn that Christian Zionism is a heresy. It was started actually in the 1900s. Uh, Darby and Spurgeon, these are, these are large names in the Christian world. And I don't know the details of it, but somehow they thought if Israel had their own land, it would hasten the return of Jesus Christ. So they thought they would suggest that. And then the Zionists who were Jews started to form. And this is before the turn of the 20th century I'm talking about. And by the time the First World War came, Zionism was already underway. They were planning on having a homeland, the Jews, which is not a bad idea, but they were thinking of maybe Argentina or Uganda, and eventually it was the British who wrote a document, a man called Balfour, who basically wrote a document that said, well, they can have Palestine. <laughs> the British had just won over the, the Ottoman Empire, and they took over Palestine as a mandate. I don't want to get too confusing, but they basically gave that idea. And by the time the World War II came and the Holocaust, it was already in motion. It wasn't a brand new idea, like many think. So I think we need to learn about these things. That I don't believe that Christian Zionism is a valid way of looking at God's Word. I believe that it's enabled some pretty, you know, because you say, because they're God's people, they can do whatever they want. Well, that's, that's not godly. That's not the justice, the mercy, and the compassion that our God represents. Mm -hmm. And if this is the Israel of God, they're not living up to the standard that God would have set for them to be a, a shining light to the nations. And so I think get, get educated and speak for Palestine and let other people know because Honestly, the concept of Christian Zionism, for instance, is, is not balanced and it's not helping any of the Palestinians, especially the Christian brothers. So, mm -hmm. I mentioned boycotting. That yeah. was one of the things that yeah, helped. Yeah, talk about that. And it, uh, it helped end apartheid in South Africa. And it um, helped in India as well with Gandhi. You know, yes. The salt and the cotton and you know, homespun clothes. Right. About, I think it was 2003 or was it five, they, a man named Barguthi, there are several of those Barguthis, but he began this thing called BDS. And if you ever see it written, boycott, sanctions, 
and divestment. I've got it backwards. Boycotting is not buying products that are made by companies that profit from the occupation. Mm. I'll just throw a couple out. HP, Caterpillar. They make money from the occupation of the Palestinians. That's boycott. But you could also boycott Sabra hummus, if you've ever seen Sabra. Yeah, buy Cedars or Joseph's. Don't buy Sabra. Um, but then to divest is to take money out of some of these big companies. And a lot of churches, American churches, have done this. Did you know that? No. I, I know that Presbyterians have done it, that the, um, the Method, United Methodist, Methodist Church. The Friends. The Quakers. Yeah. Mennonites. Mennonites. Um, the old, what is it, United Church of Christ? Yeah. Anyway, many of these Christian organizations have taken upon themselves to divest from these companies. That sell their stocks. They sell their stocks, right. This is a First Amendment right, so uh, in this you might get not want to buy that hummus, but you also might know when you see BDS what it's talking about, and that your lawmakers don't get behind that. Because often you have a choice, you can say something about that. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're Americans, we get to say something about our government. Yeah. So BDS, it definitely makes a difference. and. You know, I think our God is good and He's compassionate and He loves and He... It's not His nature to abuse people and unfortunately this occupation and the, the over 70 years of Israel have abused people human rights wise. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't even get into some of the things that go on there, but it's good to know and you know you don't need to be afraid to know because God is still on the throne. He's bigger than all of this. Mm -hmm. I, I trust that he will bring a resolution one day. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Well, that's it for this interview. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this subject. I realize that we were only highlighting one side of this very two-sided issue. Uh, and I know that many of us see Israel's present existence as a fulfillment of prophecy, which I also believe. But that does not mean that their treatment of Palestinians is justified. There's a lot to think about here on this subject. Please come on to restitutio.org and leave a comment on Interview 52, The Plight of Palestinians with Gloria Olivier, and share your thoughts. Also, if you'd like to check out the book mentioned in this episode called Blood Brothers by Elias Shakur, I have a link in the show notes for this episode. It's available in print, but also on Audible. Additionally, we got a new review. <laughs> William wrote, Simply put, Restitutio is my favorite podcast. Sean Finnegan does an excellent job balancing critical theological issues and practical Christian concerns. And even more, Sean does a remarkable job fostering conversations, making all sides feel like they have a place at the table, and giving those with differing views the time, space, and forum to make their case. If you want to enjoy deep theological presentations on core issues of the Christian faith, this podcast is for you. If you want to wrestle with the important questions of our time with respect to Christianity as it intersects with politics, culture, and society, this podcast is for you. If you want to interact with Sean and present an opposing view, guess what? This podcast is for you. I could not recommend this podcast more. Thanks, Sean, for all that you do for our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, thanks so much, William, for these kind words. It really does help people find Restitutio more easily when they're searching for Christian theology podcasts, Christian living podcasts. So uh, I really appreciate that. And if you would like to write a review for Restitutio, I would appreciate that. You can do it through Apple. You can do it through Stitcher. And I believe on Google Play, you can also do it if you use that for podcasts. So thanks so much to all of those of you who have written reviews. I really appreciate it. And if you haven't yet, consider writing a review for Restitutio. It really helps. Additionally, we have had a lot of engagement on the last episode, Theology Part 24, Challenging the New Covenant. And uh, I've got Anthony Buzzard as well as someone named Richter in the comments there. Too many comments to read out here, uh, but I would encourage you, if you are interested in the subject, Did Jesus Keep the Law of Moses?, then uh, check out the conversation on there. Sadly, I don't always have time to engage in these conversations in great detail, owing to other commitments that I have in life. In fact, right now, I'm at the Church of God General Conference in Pelzer, South Carolina, but I did want to get this podcast episode out to you in a timely manner, and as I have time available, I will. I'm hoping to be able to reply further on this But if you're interested in it, please come on and have your voice be heard as well. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. In fact, we are all in this thing together, and it is so helpful to have varying points of view so that we can figure out what the truth is, because in the end, the truth has nothing to fear.